My guest in this episode is Angela Johansson, whose career has taken her from New Zealand to the Middle East via Australia and from consumer and retail marketing to professional services business development, working for some of the world's most prominent and successful law firms. Having moved to Dubai nearly eight years ago as head of BD and marketing for Clyde & Co, she was successful in transitioning to a senior operations role and in 2020 was appointed as chief operating officer for the Middle East and Africa. How did she get there? Let's dive in and find out. Welcome to the podcast, Angela. It's so nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. So I think the last time I saw you was in Sydney, but I also first met you way back in Auckland. Seems like a million years ago now. So it's brilliant to talk to you (laughs) from your office in Dubai. Well, Let's talk about your career journey. So you've you've spanned different industries, as I've mentioned, in different countries and regions. Did you ever think when you embarked on your career that you'd be running a global law firm in Dubai? Not at all, not at all. I suppose I, I did have a vision of, you know, wanting to do better, wanting to experience different organisations and wanting to experience different places in which I worked. Uh, so I, I did think that that was going to be in my horizon. But if you told me that I was going to be the chief operating officer of a law firm, I, I would have said, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> well, should we, should we go back to where it first started? What was your first real job? <laughs> You're probably going to laugh at this, but um, my first uh, job was actually selling radio. Um, so I was meant to be doing my big OE, as you do in New Zealand, where you know, you finish university, you work for a little while, and then you go and do your overseas experience in the UK. Um, I didn't really want to do that. So I wanted to start earning money straight away. And so I went and sold commission only uh, radio advertising. And that was back in the day where you had a load of fun in Mm. radio. And I I learned to have fun in my careers, which I think is really, really important. Mm. Um, From there, and I soon worked out that 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 was all fun, but it wasn't going to bring me in, you know, some good money in a, in a proper career. So I was fortunate to uh, be appointed on the Leadership Cadet program for uh, Kieran Breweries. Uh, and it was sponsored by the highly regarded uh, Kevin Roberts, uh, which went on to become uh, the CEO of global advertising magnate Saatchi and Saatchi. Wow. And that grounding was amazing. Um, he His leadership was phenomenal. And I was one of two women uh, appointed to that, which was very much back then a man's world Mm. in the brewing industry. And I suppose I learned a lot of skills around believing in yourself from an early age and also uh, going the extra mile. Because if you're in a man's world back in those days, you did actually have to go the the extra mile. Mm. So, yeah, I learned a lot from from my first, uh, first job. From there... I continued on the product marketing um, trajectory and, again, I landed in a fortunate position where my skill set from, particularly on the sales side and sales and marketing, saw me uh, go into working for Office Max, which you mentioned at the start. And, again, I was their first female branch manager. And then I was thrust into a world of people management and profit and loss statements (laughs) and all of those sorts of good things um, but again, you know, a, 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 an increase in my skill, uh, new things, and which I'd never experienced. Uh, and then from there, that was when I 
fell into legal and literally did fall into into legal. legal. Before before we get to falling into legal, I'm just curious to ask you, you said that you were fortunate enough to get your cadetship, then you were fortunate enough to get the role at um, Office Max. But, you know, fortune is one thing, but why do you think you got there? Like, what was it about you at that time that people saw potential in you? Um, Well, you probably asked the wrong person, but I would like to think that people said, you know, I was probably a can-do. I'm naturally one of those people, I think, that I've got the glass half full can-do. I'm very sort of revenue-focused and client-focused, and I think that sort of that mindset is something I've focused on right throughout my career, even at the time when we're talking about profit and loss, you know, I'm fine if you want to save a bit of margin here and there, but at the end of the day, you can only do that for a short time. It's all going to be about clients and the markets you serve and mm-hmm. and the revenue line, you know, at the end of the day. So I think that that stood out for them. And then I'd like to think just having fun and what we did. We mm. I remember, you know, coming up with ideas about you know, team building and, and and working as a team. And I always had that sort of bent around, you know, you're surrounded by people that you'd like to work with. And and I think they that sort of rubs off on people and they see you focused on, you know, revenue and, and focused on clients and then, you know, hopefully a good person to be around and to work with. And I think that gets you a long way in life. Yeah, it's it's well, it certainly got you a long way in life. So you <laughs> went from Office Max where you were for over a decade and and then you joined one of New Zealand's largest most prominent law firms Kensington Swan as it was then uh, I have to say if if, if Kensington, Kensington Swan or a law firm came to me now and said we're looking for a you know head of marketing head of business development I wouldn't be going to a candidate from Office Max so what was it about your experience there and how did you get that job <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to answer this but um I think with the decade that I was at Office Max, I worked my way up through product marketing. I worked my way up through international marketing, international relations. I worked my way up through uh, different channels and taking different channels to market and big, mm-hmm. big tenders that we were we were we were running for you know large, uh, large clients and government and, um, relationships. So I remember going to the recruiter and saying to them that I wanted to break out of office products and I wanted to try something new. And they said to me, well, you haven't had any experience in interviewing for nearly a decade other than the internal applications for your various promotions. So I think you would be fantastic. Just go to the interview. It's a law firm. It's uh, it's a, a bunch of barristers that have come out of uh, KPMG Legal at the time. I just heard baristas. I didn't hear. I didn't hear barristers. So I went. <laughs> I went online that night because I really didn't mind. You know, I was just interview experience, and I was looking at all press coffee and various coffee places. And I said, "This is going to be amazing." I went into their flash building uh, for the interview and thought, "Wow, there must be a lot of money in coffee." I sat with all these people in suit, and they were largely men. And then I very early on clicked that I had really not prepped for the right job. Um, that was back in the day, you know, where <laughs> they were coming out, they liked what they saw. We had a great interview. We really did head it off. We were talking about all the things that I really liked and obviously that sort of resonated with them. And, it, and the recruiter rang me up and said, guess what, you've got the job. That's amazing. Said, but this, this was just meant to be experience. And, 
and I, I'm embarrassed to say, but I'm sure the people that I that uh, that are still at Kensington's form will laugh at this at the story. I have that I have disclosed that a couple of times. I, so I do know what the difference mm-hmm. between a barrister and a barista right. is now, though. <laughs> they do go well together, though. <laughs> well, a lot of coffee gets drunk in law firms. That is that, that is absolutely true. What what experience did you have at Office Max that was useful for the law firm? And also, what didn't you have? Like, what did you? Let's do that bit. That's more interesting. What What did you not have when you got to the law firm? What did you have to really dig deep to find when you were there? So, all through my career, I'd been selling products. And I'm not quite sure the legal profession saw themselves as products. And the word sales was an absolute dirty word to them. We are not salespeople. Um, so the, the terminology I used and the words that were absolutely became completely um, acceptable to me in my career, that all the shareholders want is revenue and profit, was not the same motivators in a law firm. And in fact, you know, they were owners of the business, but they were also salespeople, um, but they were also heavily involved in the operations. So, from a, you know, it would be very uh, common for them to come down and tell me, you know, that they didn't like the colour I was using or that they didn't feel that the people that um, that we were we had on a particular campaign worked or that the client list, you know, for an event used, had to be majority of their friends, which... We're never the givers of work. So <laughs> I did learn a lot. I also, the biggest lesson I learned was that, you know, when you work for big listed companies, whatever the CEO says goes in a partnership, that's that's not the way it works. Did you have moments at the beginning where you wondered why you were there or did you relish it from day one? I think I relished it from day one, mainly because of the people that were that were there with me. Um, Kenzie and Swan, when they first came out of, uh, a lot of them came out of KPMG Legal, surrounded themselves with very, very good people, you know, from Deloitte and from a number of the other law firms. So the people were in uh, almost startup mode. They were excited and that, that there was a lot of energy uh, around the, the possibilities. And that carried on for, for a number of years. Of course, there were moments that I was going, gosh, don't these guys get it? Um, but on the whole, the, the, the team that I worked with were, were amazing. And what we achieved in, in the seven years that I was there, um, I'm very proud of, and I'm sure they are too. Seven years is actually quite a long time. And, and, and after you, your stint there, you moved to another law firm, but you went to Sydney. And for people listening who don't know, think that Australia and New Zealand is the same place. And believe me, there are people like that. Um, actually, Sydney is very different. <laughs> <laughs> Sydney is very different to Auckland. So what... Why did you move to Sydney and what did that move teach you? So the firm I was working with had a a relationship with Norton Rose um, and it was Norton Rose at the time when they moved across Um, and it was in 2011, I want to say, I think it was around about that. And if you remember, that was not long after the global financial crisis, which Australia was hit pretty hard. Mm. Um, So it was about establishing their uh, marketing team again and their business development team and how they went to market. The other thing that happened was that they merged with Fulbright, uh, which for all the alumni at Norton Rose at the time, you remember that the Fulbright uh, merger was perhaps the biggest in the market. Mm. And I learned a lot through that um, and, and was part of that growth 
to merging, you know, a US and a UK mindset. And through my career at uh, at the various um, ownership of uh, office products, we were sold and bought many times through the decade. And there was, we almost swapped for various, um, you know, between the UK ownership and then we'd go back to the US ownership and then we'd go back to the UK ownership. Uh, so I learned, you know, the uh, cultural differences or nuances, I'd say, with working for a US headquartered company, I think is very, very different to working for a UK headquartered um, company. And that was your first international career, so moving from New Zealand to Australia. Did you, did, was there anything about that move that affected you personally? I mean, how did that change your life moving to Sydney from New Zealand? It was definitely a faster pace. Right. Uh, there was a level of confidence which I'd never seen before. The, um, the the confidence that the Australians have in themselves. Um, we won't talk about sport on this on this no. um, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> is 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 quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very successful at what they do, and perhaps the the culture that I'd come from was probably a little bit more. Uh, reserved and a little bit more conservative um so I learned a lot around that aspect of the cultural differences but I wasn't really in Sydney that long I think it was you know four or so years enough that I did pick up a bit of a twang though in Mm. my in my accent did you think when you moved to Sydney when you left New Zealand to go to Sydney did you think that that was the start of a long international career or, or or were you thinking that you would return to New Zealand at some point so um, definitely not let's take a deep dive here to review what we've heard so far in all of these podcast interviews i'm always struck by how the seeds of a great career and the characteristics themes ambition and goals are sown early on often at the very beginning of someone's working life from her first job selling advertising space on a commission only basis working in male dominated industries and working out quickly that the people you work with, the energy the business has, and the permission you give yourself to take risks are as important as the skills and experience you bring to the job. She knew at the beginning that she would have an overseas career, and she also realised quickly that she needed and thrived in environments that challenged and developed her skills, as well as introducing her to many different cultures and types of work. All of this would give her the confidence to carry on exploring new pathways, which eventually would lead her to being a COO of a global law firm in the Middle East. Let's return to the interview to hear how she got there. So let's talk about your your current location. So you're, you're currently living in Dubai. What was it about Dubai that appealed to you? Well, I think I'm going to blame it on one of your team members, Katie, the famous Katie, actually, because um, I was, this is, again, it was opportunity knocks at a particular time. And I think what I've learned in my career of some, you know, be open to open. to as many opportunities you had. And I remember having lunch with her and I had, you know, five positions that I needed filling and I was going on a five or six week vacation. And I said, could you please make sure that those roles are all you know, filled by the time I get back. She said, well, the reason why I really wanted to talk to you is I've got an offer for you. Uh, <laughs> and the rest is history. Um, she, she again, once again, just said, just go for an interview. Yeah. And I really like the people that 
uh, were on the other end of the phone and then we had, you know, subsequent meetings. And for me, a, a, a lot of the career satisfaction I've had and the learnings I've gained is from working with fantastic people. Mm. Had you been to Dubai before? Not at all. No, really. So, so it really was a leap of faith to, to leave Sydney mm. and go mm. to Dubai and join, an, and join another law firm. What what preparation do you did you make or do you make when you're doing a move like that? I mean, just to, to help other people who are thinking about moving from one country to another. Are there, are there certain, you've done it twice now, are there certain things that you, like a mental checklist that you go through to make sure that you've managed the risk or do you just literally just go on the gut feel? I wish I could say I was that you know more calculated and organised and everything, but the energy is is what takes me there. I think I just mm. I see the glass half full, um, and I concentrate on all the opportunities. I don't really think too much about it because I always think you know if you make a decision, it's not the end of the world if it doesn't work out. Just do something else or go back or mm. you know mm. I, I think we get a little bit too precious about you know making sure that everything's the right the right. Um, opportunity because you can learn from opportunities that don't work so well as well mm-hmm. that's perhaps you know they shouldn't be undervalued as well what did what did you learn from or what have you learned from working in the middle east because it's a very different um culture and a very very different business isn't it in in, in the middle east so what have you learned from your time there uh, so I work, I'm fortunate to work for a UK headquartered firm, um, a very successful one. That, that Clyde & Co are the uh, biggest international law firm that's been here for sort of 35 years and spanning, you know, across the, the entire Gulf and into um, Africa. What I've probably gained the most is the pace of change. You can do it a lot in a short length of time. Right. Um, the... the uh, the government here uh, has is phenomenal in terms of the pace of change, mm-hmm. uh, and I've learned that you can be you can be very successful giving things a go, um, and they really do encourage that both at Clyde and Co in the firm that I'm working for now, but also in Dubai. You get to do a lot that you perhaps wouldn't get to do. Uh, if you're in the UK or if you're in Sydney where the markets are a little bit more structured and they're a little bit, you know, they're quite hierarchical and there's a lot of a lot of people. Um, in the Middle East, I think you can be quite nimble, you can be flexible. There's a, a huge number of markets just in the Gulf alone. And then when you look at Africa, you know, the, the world's your oyster, that continent is, is amazing. How does it how does it affect business development strategy? Like if you, you've worked for a law firm in New Zealand, law firm in Australia, albeit international firm in Australia, is his business development and marketing strategy different in the Middle East? Is there, is there a change that you could say, we do things this way or that way? I, I wouldn't say, I mean, the fundamentals are the same where, you know, we're focusing on an inbound market, international clients largely. In recent times, though, um, in the, what have I been here, eight years now, I've seen another client segment that uh, is incre- of increasing importance, certainly to our firm, and that's the regional conglomerates. And that's basically describing the big, large trading families that are becoming more sophisticated. They are, uh, they need to purchase legal services, uh, they've got a lot of money uh, and they're looking to invest it wisely and through 
diversification, but also not just in the Gulf, but externally. And so dealing with uh, business development channels that uh, match, looking at the, the client segment of regional conglomerates versus the international market is very, very different. Mm. Um, we've also got uh, a lot of uh, programs like nationalisation programs, subsidisation, emiratization, um, BBE in Africa, and that has... I've gained a lot of knowledge from working with different cultures and different backgrounds and motivations and how people like to do business. So I think that side is definitely different. Mm. If you just focus on the inbound international market, that's perhaps headquartered in the US and the UK. Bit of it, the same thing. You you talk like a marketer. You've been a marketer for a long time, but, but then you pivoted that awful word that we now use all the time. You pivoted to operations and you're appointed chief operating officer i mean that is a huge achievement um particularly um in the middle east uh for, for a woman in the middle east it's you know to, to, to reach that that height without any previous operations experience talk to me about how that happened and, and why you chose to take that job uh yeah uh i must admit when the ceo came to talk to me and said, um, we think you'd be great in the chief operating officer role. I didn't really understand why he would actually see that as a benefit to the firm. Uh, so when I sort of quizzed him a little bit more and, and tried to understand what his vision was, he basically said all of the chief operating officers that we've got around the world are largely being counters. And they're very good at working out profit and loss and how to make a profit at the end of the day. But you're the only person across the world that keeps talking about client and revenue because we can make the profit and loss, we can make the margin, do whatever we need to do in a particular financial year. But unless we focus on the top line and the clients, we'll keep having these margin conversations. Um, And again, it was just what I said at the beginning, which is the passion that came through for client and the client programs and the way we market to clients. In effect, effect, we're all here to advise our clients and help our clients succeed. And by that, we succeed. And then we can pay our people more and we can give back to the community and what you're working, give back to the legal sector, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it was, again, just he saw that in Mm. me and he wasn't seeing that in the other other sort of cohort of COOs. And I can say now that amongst the number of COOs we've got globally around the world, there is a a huge range of diversity, both in terms of gender diversity, but also there's some really great sort of process organisational development COOs. There's uh, people like myself that come from a revenue sales client background. And then there is the the bean counters um, that focus on the margin as well. So I think, yeah, his vision, I've got to take my hat off to him, you know, he saw uh, a, a different cohort of um, COOs to help them uh, lead the business to where it is today, and, and and I was one of them, so I was very fortunate. And we often get asked by senior BD people, you know, that they, they look at people like yourself, and there are several of you now who've transitioned from business development directors to chief operating officers. What is the difference? What do you spend most of your time doing as a chief operating officer that you weren't doing as a BD director? 
Uh, so I think the the commercials of the firm are paramount, understanding why you're doing it and what the impact to the firm is. So um, you can get quite wrapped up in a particular client or a particular sector. Uh, however, you know, what does what is the impact of that sector or that client over the over you know a period of time to the business? Uh, and it's sort of grounding the conversations into the commercials of the, in this case, law firm mm. or the organisation and how that sort of will affect the profit and loss you know, at the end of the day of the business. And do you oversee IT and HR and, and, and finance in that role? To me, it's less about a discipline and more of a way of thinking. Okay. And appreciate that a collection, if everyone makes up the success of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to have people that are driving the top line. We have to have people that are caring for our products, which are our people. And we have to have people that are that are managing the margin uh, in the IT and especially in today's world. So I don't see it as a particular discipline as long as you've got that mindset and you've got that experience and that background. The legal profession is changing dramatically. I mean, we were recently... Katie and I were recently in Singapore for the law firm uh, Financial Times Innovation Awards, and we were talking a lot with clients there about how technology and innovation are affecting the legal sector. Are you seeing that change in in Dubai, and, and how does it manifest itself? Yeah, significantly. I think every firm's looking to digitise their offering, either to reach a new market or to enhance their margin or, or, or whatever they're, they're trying to do. Um, and we're no different. Um, we don't run things out of Dubai necessarily. We are headquartered in the UK and what we do is global. We're a global international firm. Um, and so everything that we do is is offered, you know, across the across the 50-odd countries in which we span. So mm. that's very much, you know, web chat GPT, AI, you know, um, matter management, all of those sorts of things that help us uh, demonstrate our value to clients is, absolutely top of the agenda there's a lot to keep up with somebody said to me in Singapore that they're just overwhelmed with the the pace of change and how much there is to read how do you keep up with everything so that you can walk into a meeting room and feel like you've at least got a handle on something gosh I remember going through COVID and and reading you know as much as I could about you know, Accenture and, you know, all the different companies that were talking about how to manage people and how to lead people and, and all that. And it, it is overwhelming. And then you just look at yourself and think, oh, I'm a rubbish leader, aren't I? I don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. I don't, I don't know, to be honest. I wish I knew. Um, I concentrate on, and particularly in the Middle East, I concentrate on three things. I concentrate on the risks. We're in, we operate in a very vulnerable uh, part of the volatile part of the world. So I'm looking at the risks, uh, the political risks, the geopolitical risks. I'm looking at uh, the retention of our staff. A lot of our people are expats that don't necessarily see Dubai or the Middle East or Africa as their permanent uh, abode. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at how we manage to get the retention of people for a long length of time. Um, and yeah, I'm looking at the clients. The clients are forever changing. 
Um, the, at the moment, we've got a very buoyant market in the Middle East. The oil price is high. The governments are spending a lot of money. Um, in contrast, there's still some nervousness around the economy um, globally and international investment um, coming in. So those are the three things I concentrate on the most. Um, I try to keep up. Uh, what I find the most rewarding is actually talking to colleagues about real life experiences. Podcasts, I think, are a source of motivation for me in the morning um, when I'm walking my dog or, or, or doing some form of exercise. But I get the most out of talking with colleagues in different markets or um, in different sectors, actually, outside of law. And, you know, what are they doing? How is it landing? What are they experimenting? Uh, I think experimentation is is kind of where, where it's at mm. as well. So let's go back to you at the beginning of your career. When, when you think about you left university, you went on a graduate program in advertising to where you are now. What what would you say to yourself? Like what what advice would you give Angela for twenty years ago? I don't have any regrets, to be honest. Um, I think the leadership cadets. Uh, cadet uh, and program helped me immensely and I'm not quite sure if those are available in the same way that you know we got to do as part of our leadership here you know we're thrust into the actual making of the beer at the beginning then we're thrust into the marketing team and then we're thrust into the accounting team and Mm. and so we really got a really you know good appreciation for every department and what they bring to the table I'm not quite sure that um, cadetships or leadership, you know, programs are structured like that. No. Uh, it's a shame, isn't it? Today. Because, because it used to be that you you would go on a graduate program um, or, mm. or a cadet program, and you would do your one or two years working for an organisation and go across all the different departments, and then choose where you were interested and choose what you wanted to do. And I think I think we've lost that now. When we look mm. at the, when we look at the, I hate to sound old, but when we look at the younger generation coming into the workforce and the way the world of work has changed in terms of how sort of um, uh, fragmented it's become, you know, and sort of siloed, you have to you, you do this particular job in this particular department. It must be really quite difficult for um, people at the beginning of their career to work out what they're going to do. Um, whereas mm. when you've got a role which is where you where you change your role every three months to go around a department, you have a feeling of opportunity and you have a feeling of openness, don't you? Which mm. which I suppose is what led you to then be quite open about going on from one thing to the other and ending up as chief operating officer for one of the world's largest law firms in one of the world's busiest and most dynamic cities. It's quite extraordinary. Mm. Mm. I think as leaders we tend to put people in boxes a little bit too much as well. And one of the things I do like about the young generation is they don't want to be put in a box. Uh, and they, they actually will say, well, I'll give my hand, I'll give it a go. You know, I'll give that a go. And you say, well, what, what skill have you got to give that a go? And they, they back themselves. They, they they'll say, you know, yeah, they don't. Yeah. Um, so in some ways it's, it's quite So you've been pretty fearless. Let's face it, you've been pretty fearless. You went from a advertising and um to 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 to, you know office max you thought you were going to work for a coffee company that turned out to be a law firm (laughs) it's taking it's taking you to the middle east do you do you ever reflect on your journey and do you ever pat yourself on the back and think to yourself i've done a pretty good job here with my career do you know what the 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 ironic thing is is i've never felt 
so vulnerable in my career is what I feel now. I think you do suffer from imposter syndrome um, as you get go through your career. Uh, I think you're more responsible for you know you're you're responsible for a whole bunch more. Mm. Um, And I think the older you get, you're a little bit less sort of less fearful, I guess. Mm. You know, the older you get, Um, and the the market is is forever changing. And the things that you talked about before, you know, it's. People are wanting to know, have you got all the answers to things? And, it, mm. yeah, it's, it's it's quite a vulnerable position to think to, to be in, I think. And talking to a number of my colleagues, they're in, you know, way bigger jobs than I am. And their imposter syndrome is, is alive and kicking as well. So it's quite ironic. You, you know, you work your way through your career and you feel like you're really good and you keep pushing those ceilings and everything. And then you get to, you know, a fairly good position and you, you suffer from the imposter syndrome quite often. <laughs> well thank you for, thank you for sharing that I think a lot of people listening will be probably quite surprised but also probably quite comforted to hear that from you um you will inspire a lot of people in your career journey um I will ask people to send you messages and congratulate you and to tell you not to have <laughs> imposter syndrome because you're pretty pretty extraordinary thank you for sharing your career story with us on deep CV diving it's been an absolute pleasure to hear your story no, oh, thank you. And I've got a Southern Rosser to uh, to thank for. So thank you.